If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. I'm Tyler Germain. My guest tonight is Ryan Banta, author of Sprinter's Compendium, probably the most comprehensive sprint book on the market, head girls track and field coach, Parkway Central High School uh, in the greater St. Louis area, right, of Missouri. Um, And I'm really excited to have Ryan here tonight. Uh, Ryan and I connected on Twitter a couple years ago, and then uh, we got a chance to meet one another uh, almost exactly a year ago at uh, a Michigan track clinic up here before everything got shut down uh, with COVID. And, um, and he's also going to be one of, uh, one of several awesome guests at a clinic that I'm putting on in February, the virtual speed and performance clinic, which I will uh, talk about a little bit later, but um, just a wealth of knowledge and a really great guy. And I'm excited to have him here. So thanks Ryan for being here. Appreciate you. Um, so we're going to try and keep this uh, kind of, you know, kind of loose, kind of casual conversation. Um, but we do have a few talking points uh, and we'll just kind of see where, where things go. Uh, I would encourage you to, if you have questions at any point, just put those in the chat uh, and we will get those. Uh, we'll get to those, you know, when, when the time comes. Um, oh, did you, un- did you mute yourself? Yeah, my kids were griping, so my bad. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, so if you have questions or things that you want to talk about along the way, just put them in the chat and we'll see where it goes. Um, I don't want to keep everybody all night long, but I'm thinking, you know, probably probably hour and a half and, uh, you know, that way everybody can still enjoy their evening and see their families and all that sort of stuff. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and get rolling. Uh so as I said, Ryan, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Uh, I thought that we could start the conversation just for anybody who may not know either of us. Um, kind of talk about your coaching background, how you got into coaching, where you've been, what you've done, what you hope to still accomplish, those kinds of things. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk there first. So my career kind of started in a weird situation. I was working on some political campaigns got a bunch of people elected. And meanwhile, I was supplementing my work in uh, politics, also working for Sam's Club Walmart Corporation. And the political thing, as they say, is a dirty business. And I ended up, you know, the bunch of people I've worked for got elected. But as I was in the neck deep, I realized that a lot of these people didn't really hold the same values that they said they did, and certainly didn't match Um, the things that I wanted in a person that I was going to represent. And I turned down a job to work in Washington, D.C. for one of the most powerful people in the world. And I did that because I wanted to be back in Missouri and St. Louis and have an impact on the community, which I came from. And D.C. was not where it was at. So when this whole situation played out the way that it did, I was kind of lost as to, well, I graduated and I had all these opportunities and everything looked really good. And then come to find out, oh, this is the real world of politics and something maybe you're not ready for because you can't influence it yet. And, oh, no, what am I going to do? Meanwhile, in the Sam's Club situation, they promised me I was going to open up one of the stores locally and be one of the main managers for that particular store. 
And when I got done with my program uh, for the managerial program for that company, they told me I was going to go to Kansas. And no offense to anybody who's listening from Kansas, but I'm not moving to Kansas. I turned down a job, <laughs> in you know, to, to live and work in St. Louis, um, not to be another eight hours. I know, Tyler. I know. It's upsetting. I'm sorry, buddy. What can I say? You flatlanders. But anyway, it was one of those things where it's like, that's just not, that wasn't in my plan. I didn't feel comfortable with it. And thankfully, I was strong enough at the time, even after going through that and feeling like I wasted a lot of time and, and maybe concerned, you know, what are my parents going to do? I've gone to college. I need to start paying back some of these loans. I just had a long discussion with them. And I said, look, I can't continue in this company. But now the problem is that I was working on politically. I didn't want to represent those people. And then Kansas was too far away from my roots. And I didn't want to up, up, literally uproot myself to a different situation. But my mom was always like, you know, Banta, Ryan, you would be a, a really, really good teacher, great communicator. You have a, an electric personality and, and you're, you know, all these kind of things. And I'm like, but mom, you were that person in our school district. And there's no way that I can follow in your footsteps. You cast a very, very large shadow. Um, I mean, she was Pillar Parkway, which is like the Hall of Fame of our school district. And our school district's the largest school district in the state, you know, represents four and a half high schools with, you know, one of them being an alternative school. And I'm like, I just, I don't think I can do this. You know, it was too much. But in spite of that, I said, you know, I really loved my track and field coach in high school and he's still there. Maybe I'll get involved in that and see what plays out in that situation. Thankfully, the day that I showed up was one of those professional development days where nobody's at school. And I didn't know that. This is like pre-Twitter texting, you know, an email wasn't even a consistent thing with your old teachers, you know, but the first person I saw when I walked through the door was him. And the conversation that he was having when I walked through the door was with his assistant coaches. So I came at the exact right moment to be back with my mentor. And he was overly excited for me to be a part of the program. He welcomed me immediately. And after a week and a half of doing it, you know, it took me a little bit to realize, oh, yeah, this is I've never never been so excited for something in a day in my entire life. I've never felt like I mattered more in my entire life. I've never looked forward to something and got so much joy out of something every day. I felt more alive than I've ever felt. Well, and that that made me realize, yep, mom was right. I need to go back and be an educator and I need to do this thing full time. If I'm doing this for free for two and a half hours after school, if I make a career of this for the rest of my life. It's not going to be a job. It's going to be a passion and it's going to be a purpose. That's what kind of brought me into that. And then thankfully, in the process of going and getting my education to teach, I was able to earn a, a head coaching spot for the girls program. And one of the things that used to frustrate me so much was I felt like girls sports at my high school were kind of undervalued. You know, they were secondary. They were certainly not equitable. And that had nothing to do with the guy who was coaching before me as the girls coach. In fact, he did a good job of kind of setting the table for me and starting to implement things that good programs do. But he was there for a brief period of time. And then he got an opportunity because he's an all-star. He got an opportunity to be an administrator for an entire school district. And thankfully, he got that great opportunity, which led for me to have the opportunity that I had. And we were able to take over that program. Unfortunately, though, we were really successful in that first year. 
And people go, why is that unfortunate that you were successful? Well, the real reality was that misconstrued a lot of the things that I was doing that I equated to success where my athletes were really just successful in spite of me, not because of me. And it took like another five years for my assistant coach to sit down and go, look, man, you ain't doing these 10 things. And if you don't continue to do these 10 things, I'm not going to be an assistant coach with you. And he goes, I'm going to make it very, very difficult for you to continue to coach here. And as hard as that was for me to hear and, and as not nice as that conversation was, he was one of my teachers in high school. So I coach where I went to school. And so here's this weird situation that I'm the boss of a guy who's kind of laying down the law on me, who was at one point my actual chemistry teacher. Mm -hmm. But after a little bit of soul searching, I took his advice. I attacked all the things that he thought I, I wasn't doing great, met with a bunch of people I felt that could help me with that, went to the USATF schools and did all those things. And then the next year, we won our first district title. And from that point on, we were incredibly successful locally and regionally, and then eventually statewide and all that kind of stuff as we build some successful things that we can get into as we continue this conversation. What year was that? Just to try to kind of try to put it on the timeline when you had that heart to heart with your former teacher who was now your assistant coach. So that was spring of 2006. Okay. Um, and then we won our first district title in the spring of 2007. Gotcha. That next year. Uh, not, not to put yourself on blast, but I'm curious, what was maybe one of those things that your former teacher and new, new assistant coach felt like you weren't doing that was like a deal breaker for him? Gosh, you name it. Um, that could be a podcast in and of itself. What not one to thing. Do by Ryan Banta. <laughs> there were so many things. A lot of it boiled down to just purely organizational things. Like I would have workouts, but I wouldn't print enough workouts for all the assistant coaches because I just didn't care. Right. Um, I was focused on only the events that I wanted to coach, which were the sprints. You know, and as I told you, that first year, we were really successful. We broke the school record in the one, the two, the four, the four by one and four by two. Now, you'll notice I didn't say four by four. And so I was so focused on the short sprints and that was it. No jumps. So my team was a sprint team, not even a track team. It was, certainly wasn't a track and field team. And so I wasn't sharing talent. I was trying to take over other athletes and influence other programs because I felt like I knew it all and the other coaches weren't up to my speed. Now, whether or not that actually was true in terms of the, the assistant coaches and all that kind of stuff at the time, I certainly wasn't able to, at that moment, massage the situation to get that work done that I wanted done in the right way as opposed to just kind of like bulldogging the situation, which didn't do anything for me in terms of the politics amongst my peers that were my assistant coaches. We were going to way too many competitions in a row. There would be competition weekends where I'd go Thursday, Friday for varsity, and then we'd follow it up on a Saturday all day. You know, that's wearing my assistant coaches out, but I was such a nut and a, a single dude like those things didn't even occur to me that those were important. It's like, well, this is my job. I'm a coach. So basketball coaches will play tournaments, you know, but those are like two or three hours, not, right, not all six. Day. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so like, these are things that I just didn't quite get. And I was also kind of like anybody's success 
that that were people that were beating us or doing a lot better than us in competition, especially team wise. It was always about like they're cheating or they're illegally recruiting or, you know, I had a lot of negative energy that I was putting out of there as opposed to kind of turning that thing around and going, what can I do better to close the gap? It was never about that. And then because I wasn't in the building, there were days where we had early releases or days that we didn't, you know, have school and just, I mean, just disastrous stuff that you would think like a regular coach would be on top of. And I would come to practice and I'd be like, where's the team at? And they're like, well, we got an early release day. Now, obviously good kids would stick around to be at practice, but it was one of those things where like, I didn't even think about that being a thing that I should talk to my assistant coaches and say, Hey, lay out the week for me. What's the plan? Look at the calendar, all that kind of stuff. I was hyperly focused on the workouts and what I could do for individual group, but I did not pay attention to the important things of program management, team development, and all that other stuff. Yeah, that's uh, well, and you know, when you're when you're young, and you said you were single, right? Yeah. And you don't work in the building. It's easy to not have that that full scope of things, right? And uh, especially when you're young and single, because you don't think about anybody when you're young and single. Um, but it's that's funny that you. This is why you're young and single, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah you better start thinking stuff. about other people pretty fast, or you'll be single for a long time. Uh, but um, you know, it's uh, something that you said to me, I think, is worth uh, circling back to, and that's that. You know, early success sometimes can be a liar when you when you there's a number of factors, right? Like maybe you take over, maybe you come into a situation, you take over a program that has been a good program uh, or that was a, a program that was building and was sort of on the cusp. And now you inherit athletes that have been pretty solid for the last, you know, two, three years. And you just got there kind of right place, right time. Uh, or, you know, th- there's a number of factors, right. But I think that it can be, it can be sort of falsely, it can build false confidence maybe in coaches. Right. And I think you kind of spoke to that, that like, Oh, well, dang, I got this thing figured out. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's the curse of the, you know, that's a curse right there. As soon as you think you got it figured out and you're content, you're complacent, you think, you know, everything that you need to know, you know, other teams don't, other teams don't, you know, stay the same. Everybody else is getting better. So if we're not also getting better, we're getting worse because everybody else is making up ground and complacency or contentedness or thinking, you know, it all is obviously, and I know I'm preaching the choir, but it just stu- that stuck out to me. Well, and a, and a key point to that Tyler is to jump off or piggyback off of that point is that then the learning curve takes even longer because you learn it the wrong way. It's just like when we coach our athletes, if we coach them and we do something entirely wrong and they learn a really, really bad technical habit or training habit or whatever that may be, then we have this really long process to fix this incorrectly learned behavior. And that's the same thing for coaching coaches. And that's why mentorship is so important. And thank God I had two gentlemen, Coach Greathouse and Coach Warren, in my life who weren't afraid to say, hey, these are the things that need to get done. And trust me, like most of the stuff was like, hey, not helping bring the stuff out, letting all the boys be the only the the boys team take out all the equipment and I'm just sitting there like I've got a girls team that should be a gentleman's job to do as opposed to thinking no we need to pitch in as well we need to go get the hurdles we need to go get some of the bats and the pads and just silly things like that 
that you don't think are a big deal. But if you don't have that conversation, you won't know. So it's always better to say, hey, what's the plan on this side? What do you guys plan on doing for practice? Hey, I don't want to interrupt what you're doing. I don't want to get in your way because our practice um, situation is our boys and girls team are, are not together. We're not a unified program. So it is important to have that communication with the other coach on the other gender to make sure that you're not interfering with what they're doing and being respectful to that. And so those are some of those questions that it seems like, duh, or yeah, but when you get so focused on the myopic aspects of what you're doing, which is I wanted my kids to be really fast and, you know, I had talent. I had the fastest girl in school history ever. Now I made her faster and then I had the second fastest hundred meter girl behind her and we broke all those records, but that doesn't mean a hill of beans after that first year, because that's just a shot in the dark. Maybe I got lucky. Maybe we had great weather. And yeah, did we work hard? Absolutely. But as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean success at all. Well, and you don't know what you don't know, right? So like, like you said, oh, well, I didn't even think about that we should be bringing stuff out or we should be doing this, that, or the other thing. I, you know, my first year as a head coach, I was also a girls head coach uh, down in Illinois, our programs, we practiced together. So I was constantly working with the boys coaches and, um, and had previously been an assistant on the boys team before I became the girls head coach, which was really effectively just a title change. I mean, there were obviously some added responsibilities, right. With me, you know, constructing lineups and that, and that sort of stuff. But we so rarely had a co-ed meet that when the one time that we did in my first year, I remember there was one time that we did have a co-ed meet and I always liked to meet with my girls like under the goalpost right after the meet was done. And then we'll pick st- stuff up or then we'll get on the bus or then we'll whatever. But I just wanted to like meet with everybody right then. Uh, and so it was a home meet and we did that. And as we were meeting and I think we won the meet, it was an, I think we won the meet it was an invitational. We won on the girl side and, you know, we're excited and everything. And as we're meeting and I'm talking with my girls, the boys team is picking everything up and putting everything away after the meet. And uh, our boys head coach was, he was pissed. He was like, like, what do you, like, what are you guys doing? Why are, why are we like, why are the boys the only ones doing this? Why aren't the girls helping out with any of this stuff? And I'm like, it just didn't, you don't know what you don't know. It didn't occur to me. I wasn't thinking about that. We so rarely had a co-ed meet. It wasn't as if I intended to leave all that stuff behind. It just wasn't the order in which I saw it happening but that lack of communication of like, like you said, what are you guys doing today? We'll be over here. How do you, what lanes do you need? That kind of like that communication between programs just didn't happen in that particular moment. Thankfully that wasn't an indicate was not an indicator of the rest of our relationship at all. Uh, and had a great relationship with that, with that coach and with both programs. But um, I can definitely relate to that sort of experience of, you know, being sort of naive or not considering, you know, all, all the factors in the equation. Yeah. And then the thing that I think is important is, you, you know, we're going to make mistakes. You're never going to be perfect. If you're perfect, you don't learn. Right. So it, it, the mistakes, the fumbles, the, you know, the honest to God, just random things that happen from time to time that aren't good or positive are really critical, and important for growth. But the only way that that can happen is that you learn from it and and that you have that learning curve. Because if you're making the same mistakes over and over and over again, that's where we get into trouble, you know. And thankfully, one of the things that, you know, I do 
I feel well is when somebody does come to me with an issue or a concern or a problem. I want to know that stuff right away. I don't want to wait. I don't want it to be at the end of the season like a debrief. I want to fix it right away. And yeah, I'm going to be probably not happy. And I'm probably going to be a grump for a couple of days as I process. But I'd really way rather have that than to be walking on eggshells, never really knowing what somebody thinks. I'd much rather have those difficult conversations early so that we can react, respond, and fix whatever thing we need to fix. Or I can explain why I'm doing what I'm doing versus kind of having this animosity that might build over the season because you never dealt with it. I'm sure, Tyler, after that conversation, you're like, hey, from here on out, we might meet for two seconds at the end to talk about what we're picking up. And then we're going to come back after things have been picked up and we'll have our debrief as a team. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, you know, like you said, um, if you don't talk about those things, they can, like you said, lead to animosity or resentment or whatever. Um, so, yeah, better better out than in for sure with that kind of stuff. Um, I want to pivot just slightly. I think maybe this is, you talked about being a good communicator, and I think that that's obviously key. But if you could sum up kind of your philosophy of coaching, how would you sum that up? And I'm going to challenge you, Ryan. Because you said this to me on the phone the other day. Uh, I'm not going to give you a time limit, but see if you can concisely sum up your coaching philosophy. Give me your elevator pitch coaching philosophy. Well, my elevator pitch is this. I want every kid to feel a part of the team and to feel special and to feel properly placed. And then through that, I build trust through that proper placement that allows them to be successful. And then by being successful, and being trusting, you develop loyalty. And then my job is to evolve along with the athlete to make sure that as they improve and progress, that we are addressing the current opportunities that they express through their performance and their desire on my team. And that we are a partnership between athlete and coach on that path of trying to figure out what's the best opportunity for them to be successful. So I look at it as a very symbiotic relationship that ever evolves to meet the new challenges so that we are a, a program that's robust, that can take on problems and respond and react stronger and better after it. So never take like a single loss or a single situation and allow it to destroy us. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to win or learn, not win or lose. And I believe that that is how you develop really, really strong programs. Um, but it, it's a process that has to be done. And then how we do that is by, you know, arming our kids with understanding and data without overwhelming them so that they know that they're making those improvements and they can trust the direction that you're taking them, not blindly like sheep, but an educated group of people that understand that you're making those right decisions for them most of the time, um, but they play a role in those decisions. I mean, that's what's so great about track and field is it's a sport where the athlete is empowered through performance to show you what they're going to be best at. And they kind of dictate what events they're going to do, uh, what their training is going to look like. And that I think is the most neat thing because it's so self-empowering. And then on top of that, the most beautiful thing about the sport is I want to reward progress, not just the talented kids. 
I'm a very progress centered coach. So every week there's some sort of reward for any kid in my program. The, the slowest, least talented kid in my program is going to probably succeed the most because our success is measured on improvement. It's a growth model. Right. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. And you, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, a few things that you said that, that kind of stuck out to me, you know, this mentality of uh, win or learn, not win or lose, right? Like, and it, as much as it can be sound sort of cliche to say, you know, that you, you learn from your losses and those, I had a coach one time, this guy was, a, he was an insane person. I talked about him in the, I talked about him uh, last week when I was on with, uh, with coach Holler and that nightmare that that thing turned out to be because of technical difficulties. But uh, this, this coach, man, he, he was really something. Um, but he said, you don't learn anything from losing. The only thing you learn from losing is how to lose. And, uh, and he, and, and I, we, I was 14. I bought into that crap, you know, like, and, and athletes tend to, um, they tend to embody the beliefs of their coaches in a lot of ways. You know, they, they, they want it. Kids want to trust their coaches. They want to trust in their coaches and they want to be led by their coaches. And so when you have that mentality, kids will adopt it. But when you have a mentality like yours, hopefully, you know, through the program that you've built, that's the mentality that they begin to, to adopt is this growth mentality of like, you know, as you said, win or learn. Right. Um, which I think is a great way to frame it uh, for kids and hopefully help them understand that this is like, this is a process, right. And there's going to be bumps along the way and uh, improvement isn't always linear. Right. In fact, it rarely is. Um, and, and that can be, that can be tough for kids, you know, when they reach those sort of natural plateaus or they get sort of those hit those sort of bumps in the road where maybe they're not progressing as fast, as fast as they'd like to, but um you know, when you have the ability to sort of reframe that and to, and to frame what success looks like, you know, and you said the, the slow, the slow gangly freshman kid is going to succeed the most because we frame success as growth. That's huge. That's huge for kids. Um, and so, that, yeah, that was really cool. I appreciate that you said that. Yeah. And, and then with the idea of the, the loss part as being an educator, a lot of times, and I had this conversation with Coach Burris on the podcast that I've been running that uh, we, we've got a couple episodes coming up and he's in my third week episode. So he's two weeks away. One of the things I thought was really interesting about his process, which I've kind of thought about, but never in this clear mindset, is that the obstacle is the opportunity, right? So when the problem arises, that's kind of good. Because then it's like, aha, now I know what the hell I am going to attack in my program this year or with this particular athlete or with this particular training site. And then as a coach, it's never on the athletes, okay? Even if it is, it's always on you. So like in 2019, I um, literally uh had a situation where we had kids and they were having bad handoffs and there was like arguments and screaming matches and all this crazy stuff going on amongst the girls and i immediately put myself in the center of it and i said neither of you have a problem with each other i said if you got a problem with anybody you have a problem with me because we have yet to prepare you i threw you to the wolves with these handoffs 
I said, but I promise you by the end of the year, we will have addressed this throughout the season and we're going to do some really special things. Just believe that I'm going to fix this, but it is not on her and it's not on her. It's on me. You want to be mad at anybody? Be mad at me. And when I was younger, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm -hmm. I'd have looked for somebody to blame. I would have looked for some out for a problem, even when it was 100% mine. Now, the model and the idea is, even when it's not your fault, it's your fault. So that way it isn't on your team, unless they do something that's egregious, which is obvious. You know, John F. Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs failure, he said, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. Well, I'm not going to let that failure be an orphan. I'm going to own it. It's going to be my child. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I rear and rearrange and fix and do everything I can to get that problem into a very good um, workable situation that we can be as successful as we can possibly be with the talent and ability that we have. Um, I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan, which probably seems like a non sequitur, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a baseball fan and I'm a Tigers fan. Cause I'm up here in Michigan and it's, so it's been a rough few years, but um, when Jim Leland was the coach of the Tigers and he's not the only coach to ever say this, but it always stuck out to me because he's this cranky old man, you know, smoking cigarettes in the post game interview. And he, he said this multiple times, but he said, you know, when, when things go well, you credit the players. And when things go poorly, you accept responsibility if you're a good coach. Um, and that, that has always, you know, stuck with me that, you know, when we do have success, do I have a part in that? I sure hope so. But when we do have success, it's my job to, to credit the, the athletes for that and, and congratulate them. Um, and, and to show that I recognize that I'm not running, I'm not in competing, you know? Uh, and then, but if things do go poorly, as you did, you know, you kind of inserted yourself into that situation or you shouldered the responsibility, but also let them know, like, it's like, we're going to get better at this and we're going to get better at together. Um, I just think that that's, that's a, a solid example of what it means to be a leader and to be a coach of a team. Exactly. And one of the things I think is important, too, is to know, like, there's a real difference between social cohesion and competitive cohesion. And so a lot of people don't understand that everybody wants to be friends all the time. And the reality is, is that when you have highly driven cats, all right, or highly driven, aggressive, thoroughbred athletes, there are going to be natural conflicts because of the testosterone and the energy and the competitive nature of who they are. And so one of the things that I talk about all the time is I'm like, I love you all the time. I don't like you all the time, you know? And that's because it is important for me to correct your decisions, to correct your behavior, or for the team itself to hold itself accountable in the right way. Like, hey, I might not hang out with you every week. It'd be nice if we did, but the reality is, is when we come in here and we come to a track and field meet, we are on a business trip and we are here to do business. So you might not be handing the baton off to your best friend. Now, interestingly enough, if you have good competitive cohesion, it leads to good social cohesion. You know, 
And it would be nice for all of us to be friends and for all of us to get along, you know, but in reality, it isn't always that way. And I found that a lot, especially with my female athletes, that a lot of times there will be issues. And then finally, once we get to the season and we start competing, miraculously, a lot of those issues kind of disappear because the competitive cohesion takes care of a lot of those problems where you wouldn't get along otherwise. I can tell you, there have been so many times where a girl had an enemy, so to speak, on a team. And by the end of the season, they were best friends because with all that pressure and all that competitiveness, we were creating a lot of diamonds by the end of the year. And now those kids are best friends for life and are in each other's weddings and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's important for coaches to understand that happiness isn't always the goal when it comes to competition, get them to be competitively cohesive, do the things they need to do. And that doesn't mean our sport isn't going to be fun and we're not going to create things to make the sport fun. But when you have a large team, there's going to be issues. It's not always going to be a smooth ride. And because of that, you as the coach have to insert yourself where you can to be a nice natural break between the two of them or a voice of reason or smoothing it out. And the best way that oftentimes you can do that is put it on you, you know, and not let the girls create that tension between them, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and you said, you know, I, I, I love you all the time, but I don't always like you, you know, uh, which is a funny way to put it. But the reality is that like, uh, you know, if, if I love you guys as a team or even thinking about like my, my own kids, right. My, my kids that I raise at home, right. If I love you, then, I can't let you do things the wrong way. I right. have to, I have to help you to understand like what is a more successful way for this to be done. Right. I can't let you, you know, I can't make the choices for you, but I can sure guide you. Right. I can't, I can't run the race for you, but I can sure show you, you know, how I think it ought to be done and help point you in the right direction. And if I don't do those things and I just let you go out there and do whatever the hell you think uh, and never say, Hmm, what about this? You know, then yeah, sure. They might be happy because you leave them alone, but they, they might not be as successful as they could have been otherwise. So I think tough love is, is gotta happen sometimes. Right. True. And you know, I've seen, you know, like in the sport across country and in football too, and, and in track, there are lots of schools that have very, very large programs, you know, where they'll have like a hundred kids. And that's a pretty big team, no matter where you're at, no matter what part of the country you're at, 100 kids for one gender is enormous. Mm -hmm. And I've seen teams with that many kids and they're not good. Right. Statistically, that's pretty much impossible. Yeah, and so some kids there. Yeah. And so your job is to get it out of them. And yeah, you want to make it fun. So you keep a lot of kids around, but you also want to be competitive. Because it's not fun to get your butt whooped all the time. Do you think you know? that that's more likely to happen? Uh, you know, like this um, sort of hesitation to to sort of administer tough love or or be hard on athletes when you need to be. Do you think that that is uh, more common in girls' sports? Like, do you think coaches have a harder time being tough on girls than they might if they're coaching a boys' team? Yeah, I, I, yes, 100%. Um, but I think what's unfortunate, and I have a friend on here, Phil can address you. He would, he would tell you something different. But um, one of the things that's really important is that you do need to give them that tough love. 
Mm-hmm. They do need to understand that if they're going to need growth. You know, if you don't have that conversation that they need to hear, that needs to happen because you're afraid of hurting feelings, that's going to limit their potential. Now, that doesn't mean we have conversations about weight or who they're going out with or any of that nonsense. It's about when they step onto practice, what the expectation is within those two to two and a half hours from warm up to weight room that you have them. That is the demand. And I don't want to hurt feelings. And I will tell them, you know, like, look, we've got to have a conversation. And this isn't necessarily going to be a pleasant conversation. But I want you to understand the only reason why I'm saying these things to you with this intensity that I'm saying it is because I really care. If I didn't care, I would just let you float off into the ether and never reach your potential because it wouldn't matter. But you, matter to me. And if you get something out of this, if you maximize your potential with us, and whatever that may be, whatever you're missing, this is going to be a much better experience for you. And additionally, like that tough love is important because you can have some social clicks within your program where girls will start to negotiate training, start to negotiate efforts, um, or what I call that negative social virus. And in my, in my master's in, in performance psychology, negative social viruses are way more prevalent amongst females. If you have one girl that cuts themselves, it's like a hundred, it's like 50% more likely that you're going to have another girl cut themselves. If one girl starts to have a weird eating habit that leads to negative eating and negative diets, it's way more likely another girl is going to have that. And so us as coaches, We have to have that tough love. We also got to make sure that everybody understands that there are expectations in my program and behaviors and things that we need. You can't be afraid of that. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there'll be guys, you know, who will almost go into fighting matches with their boys, you know, saying, if you're going to come at me like a man, you better expect big boy consequences. And sometimes that could be pretty dangerous as well, you know? And so not all guys respond really well to that either true you know and so there's there's no absolutes in anything right right now one trick if you were going to come away from this conversation today that i think is something valuable if you're going to address a conversation with a girl that's not a real positive don't do it in front of the other girls pull the girl aside where everybody can still see you're having a conversation but have that conversation with them where not everybody's being no noisy or nosy Mm -hmm. in in terms of what you're having um, but they know that it's a serious conversation and, and that you can have that talk. Don't, don't ever dress them down verbally uh, in front of other athletes. I'm not a big fan of that. I think that's wildly destructive. Um, but you still need to hold them accountable. And so I have a checkout routine in practice where every kid used to have to shake my hand or give me a high five or a fist bump. And in the world of Corona, we're going to do, you know, the Wakanda, I guess, to each other or elbow each other or something but they still have to check out with me because that gives me an opportunity where maybe I see something in practice, but it isn't the right time to address it. I still want to make sure I address it before they go home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll fist high five, air five, elbow, whatever. And then if a kid comes to me that I want to talk to say, Hey, come over here, let's have a conversation. And I'll have my assistant coach fist bump, you know, elbow or whatever, every kid. And I do that because I want to have that opportunity that they don't escape practice. And I don't know where they went, 
but also it provides me an opportunity to interact with every kid on the team at least once every session that I have, which then provides me an opportunity to go, oh yeah, I meant to talk to you about this. Come over here for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I like that too. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And I would always like, you know, uh, I like to high five kids at the start of practice too. Just even when they're milling about or line, we used to do like when, we were, when I was in Illinois, we'd have them like literally line up for like almost attendance, like it was gym class or something, which we don't always do that uh, anymore. But you know, it made it easy for me to, to walk through the lines and be like, Hey, how's it going? How was your day? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Oh, you were sick yesterday. How you feeling the day? You know, did you get that assignment turned in or, you know, like whatever kind of stuff, you know? Um, cause unfortunately I think sometimes and I, it was, it was good. It was a small team. It was easy to do, but right. You mentioned some of these teams that are really big kids can get lost in those teams. If you're not careful and you're not intentional about making sure that every kid feels seen uh, and feels like they're part of the team, um, then, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you gotta be careful and you gotta be, you gotta do it on purpose. You gotta be intentional about it. Um, I wanted to kind of move into talking about training a little bit. Um, and you had an article recently that was on simply faster and it was, uh, I don't have the exact title in front of me. It was something, but the war on tempo training, Ending the war on Ending tempo training. the war on tempo training. So uh, I'd love to talk about that a little bit and what, um, where this idea comes from for those uh, who may not know what is, what is, there's a war on tempo training. What's going on? What did I miss? Uh, what do you, what do you see as the war on tempo training? What kind of inspired this is my, if this was my English class, I'd say, what was the exigence for this piece? What, what sparked you to write this piece in this time? Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start there and then we'll kind of get into the meat and the potatoes. Cause, um, I've said some stuff on Twitter that might be considered anti-tempo. Uh, now there's a lot of context there. Like you and I talked about on the phone the other day, but let's start there. Let's, what was the inspiration for this? What, uh, what is the war on tempo? Where is it coming from? And why are we fighting this? Why are we trying to stop this war? Well, I think the catalyst to the, uh, the article is obviously that, um, in the time where we haven't been able to be very competitive, um, there's been a lot of opportunities for webinars and information um, and coaches development to be had. And through that, there's a lot of messaging that's out there. And I think that it's important that through that messaging, which is consistently from um, enthusiastic individuals, that sometimes those enthusiastic individuals maybe aren't providing all of the context of the understanding or even the belief or they have bias uh, for or against a particular pursuit. And when we look at tempo training, that's one of the things that has been poo-pooed quite often by a large group of coaches who are pretty friendly with each other. And I think that one of the things that we have to understand is that it's nice to make bold, absolutist statements and say, I will never do this. And in the world that we live in that's algorithmed out for us to get into these arguments, and look at these things as a binary choice that makes it really spicy. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, tempo training has become one of those things. And part of the problem is, and I don't mean to call anybody out individually, but I'm pretty concerned about the understanding of what that is. 
I think that some people the understanding of what tempo training is. Yeah. You know, like what it really looks like. Yeah, sure. And if, it, if it's done right. Correct. And, and that's the thing. Correct. If it's done correctly, are we talking about intensive? Are we talking about extensive? Are we talking about doing work capacity for, for a thrower? Are we talking about doing work capacity for an 800 meter runner? Are we talking about doing work capacity for a sprinter? And the reality is, is that first of all, you know, lactate is a fuel. So when you build lactate, you're building a fuel. You can look up, you know, the guy who in basically put, you know, the high intensity training model where there's these short recovery intervals into work, you know, and you look at the research that's done there. And yes, it actually requires that higher upper echelon, but yet not maximum velocity loading to get that product to be produced for the body to deal with that, use it as fuel. And that right there is one thing. Then you look at the idea of all of the other advantages of submaximal work. And then when we talk about submaximal work, well, running at 92% and 95% is submaximal work because sure. the only way you run maximal is in competition or supermax. So then are you telling me that that's not valuable? And it's kind of like a lot of these controversial subjects, they're on a, on a flow chart. So where is it that you're uncomfortable? Is it six times 200 or is it 24 times 200? Where on a, on on are a you spectrum? On a spectrum, yeah. you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it's one of those things where people oftentimes don't understand why are you doing it? Mm. Where does it go? Or they think that that's what's happening every day in practice. Like I hear day in and day out, oh, there's a war on speed. Nobody's coaching speed. Nobody's tiny in intervals. I don't know what planet you're on, but every practice I was in when I was in high school, my intervals were timed and I was moving ridiculously fast because I had a guy on my team who smelled terrible. And so I didn't want to be behind him. So I was running as fast as I possibly could to be in front of him. Now, that wasn't very specific, but it wasn't very slow. Sure. And I just never seen that. And so I think one of the things is, is we create these false divisions because they're shiny and they're fun to argue about. They grab our attention and then they irritate us, just like anything else that's in the world of politics. So what should tempo look like? It's well, hold, a on. Yeah. hold on, I'm gonna pause you there. So we know we know what prompted it, right? right. And, I, and I think that uh, I, I sort of knew the answer to the question, spoiler alert. Um, but uh, I actually had a, a somewhat different experience, which, and for those who don't know, uh, I would consider myself not, certainly not, I don't want some people who interact with me on Twitter, you know, or wherever might think that I'm anti anti-tempo or anti-sub max. That's not the case. My issue is that I, I have seen it done poorly and misunderstood an awful lot, uh, in my coaching career, which has been, this will be my 17th year of coaching. Um, and so I have an issue with, with, poorly executed and poorly prescribed tempo, which is what I've seen more of than I want to see. Um, and, but when you said that your experience was that you, you as a runner, uh, had splits timed and, and all those kinds, I, I ran a time trial in practice once a year and I never had anything else timed in practice. Um, and the first you know, I, I coached at the same place that I ran. 
Um, and we didn't time sprints and practice. Uh, and then I got my first coaching job outside of there and we didn't time sprints and practice. Uh, and then I went to, I went to Illinois and we did sometimes, um, or we would race kids, you know, to try to increase that intent for speed work. And so I come from maybe a little bit of a, the opposite end of the spectrum where I, I haven't seen a lot of coaches doing that. Um, and then some of the tempo work that I have seen has been, has been either poorly prescribed or poorly executed. So let's, that's, let's use that as a segue then to talk about what does well-prescribed and well-executed tempo work or sub-max work look like in your opinion and what are the benefits to be had? Before I say that, let's, let's uh, clearly define one thing as well. I would think that oftentimes when we look at tempo as being a problem or a negatively uh, impacting training system, uh, whether it's done right or wrong, I would argue that those coaches that did that stuff were just bad coaches in general. And I would also argue that you were still find, learning, Ryan. Yes. Right. Well, if they did it for, like you told me, 27 years, and the guy was, was almost a hundred, a hundred years old, he's not learning at all, you know? So those people would be the problem. But I would also argue that there are coaches who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who are not doing their athletes uh, a service by not managing biomechanics overclocking, overspeeding, improper warmups, um, wrongly prescribed uh, training plans for the, you know, the muscle um, makeup of the athlete, which is traditionally a mix of T and CC, you know, and you could see really wrong-headed and poorly executed coaching within that. And that information being disseminated inappropriately as well, where coaches aren't getting out of their kids what they should not because they want to run them into the ground because they want them to be as successful as they possibly could be. So I think the big problem we have is coaching. Then I would argue if, if you're not getting times, who's buying all the stopwatches, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I just, it's just one of those things where if, if coaches aren't timing, what's going on, you know? Um, and I think that the big thing is just large volumes of everything is the issue. You know, it's not just tempo, it's large volumes of special or speed endurance, you know, things that are just not at the proper prescription. Okay. So when I look at properly executed tempo, number one, you don't do sub-maximal work of any kind the day after a complete day of rest. Okay. Because you're missing out on the opportunity to take advantage of the biochemical restoration that has taken place for the day of recovery. And then you're also missing out on the opportunity to take advantage of the CNS when it is absolutely at its freshest and it's primed to be stimulated again. Mm -hmm. So when I see somebody like, I love Clyde Hart, I think he's a great coach, but I don't do tempo 200s on a Monday. You've just now wasted three days. Yep. You wasted the Sunday, that's the recovery. You wasted the Monday that you can take advantage of an aggressive key performance indicator workout and then you've missed out on an opportunity to do something on Tuesday because you muddled Tuesday for the second day, which is like one of the things like, don't let today ruin tomorrow, which is what Tony says all the time. I said, let, in my ideas, let today prepare for tomorrow, to build for tomorrow, that everything is sequenced in a way that it makes sense to get the best out of your athletes. So on Mondays, regardless 
if you have a pure 100, 200 meter kid, or you have a 200, 400 meter kid, or a 400, 800 meter kid, which are all, in my opinion, the sprint events. Okay, I include the 800 as a sprint. Um, that, that day is dictated by the key principles of whatever that event is. So for me, I'm looking at what I call speed reserve work. Now, a lot of people look at speed reserve as being created through improving the maximum, maximal output of a sprinter. Sure. My idea is I want to have my sprinter sprint as long as they can at the highest intensity that they can. So that way it's easier over the distance that they're supposed to run. So those workouts, like for a 100 meter sprinter, you're going to be doing 120s. You're going to be doing 80s. Um, you might do some max velocity on that day. You might do acceleration on that day. You would have to pick one of those two things to be doing in a package. Tuesday, then you come with some sort of work capacity tempo day. For my heavy, big, big sprinters that have a tendency to get too heavy, we might do barefoot tempo runs at 70, 75% on the grass. But if they're not heavy, then they're going to run 150s or 200s at 85% or uh, with two and a half to three minutes rest at the beginning of the season. Now, why am I doing that? Because, I was just going to ask because I, when you said 70 to 75%, to me, I start feeling like that's too slow. You don't feel like it is? No, I don't feel like it is because the goal of that particular day is to build on what you did yesterday, which was a maximal effort over whatever the distance, whatever the particular specific critical mass of meters and intensity that you're trying to work at. Gotcha. And so one of the things that we're looking at, if we do 70 to 75%, which isn't my choice often. Okay. If I have an athlete that is a short, short sprinter that doesn't do well on a second day, I use that as a high low, but I'm not giving them the entire day off. I'm using that day as an opportunity for restoration work on um, mechanics to work on um, the elastic properties, the connective tissue strengthening, um, improving the cardiovascular system, or excuse me, the circulatory system so that they're better athletes in cold weather. Um, all those type of things can come from that lower impact. Now, if I have my choice, I don't do that as much as I would often do 85% effort with short recoveries because I'm using that to build up the athlete's ability to process lactate as a fuel to buffer lactate so that they can get rid of it and shuttle it out of the body faster because in a high school track and field meet, a lot of times you're gonna have to sprint back to back. In the state of Missouri, they have the 100 and then the four by two. That's a skill you need. Number three, if they're a 200 and 400 meter athlete, there is waste that's built up in discomfort. And I would rather minimize that waste and minimize that discomfort. You can maintain good proper posture lacking uh, what I call the shock moment or the scare moment in any sprint where you start to feel things go away from you and you can push that shock or fear moment farther and farther away because the body isn't feeling that with the severity or the earliness of it in the bodily response. Obviously, it's more important for the 400 than it would be for the two, but it's still there in the two. Can we talk that, about that? when we talk about that, that moment, right. We always call that the, the, the monkey jumped on your back, you know, Correct. You, you come out of the starting block and there's a monkey chasing you after you, after you, 
And then there's always that moment for a lot of kids where you can almost see it. It almost looks like a monkey jumped on their back because they fall apart and it happens so fast. So you're, what you're saying is you're trying to extend because that point's going to happen, but you're trying to push that point further down the track so that it happens maybe with 50 meters to go instead of a hundred meters to go or whatever. Correct. And the faster that they get, the less they're going to spend time in that. And that's why Monday is so important that Tuesday is then coupled with it. It's like having a nice steak and a red wine. You know, you're not going to drink a diet cola with a steak. And if you do, you're a savage and what's wrong with you. You know, you want to pair these things nicely. Well done but, with ketchup, please. Yeah, exactly. You know, or I, if I see somebody pour Worcestershire sauce on a steak, I'm like, dude, that's not a good steak. What are you doing? But anyway, um, for me, then what we want to see is we want to see that tempo transform. You're not staying in the same spot all year long. There has to be progress within that workout. And that's where the devil gets into the details. It isn't doing the same damn thing all year long. So then what happens is, is that we're trying to target the comeback 200 pace, the back end for a 400. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get where the athlete can repeat that over and over and over again so it's never uncomfortable so when our athletes get to a 200 meter in the 400 meter dash i can close my eyes because i know what's going to happen they're going to win the race Do because you? i know what they're capable of in the back end Do you close you know? your eyes or are you going crazy no i mean we're whatever but you know what i'm saying but i know i'm can, just messing with you yeah <laughs> they can they can they can finish it off and i have no concerns or worries that where they're at at that point in the race and again, when you think about, hey, you're running a four by four, you're running a open four, 300 meter hurdles, 200, four by two, maybe four by eight, maybe eight. If they don't have the ability to do those things, they don't see it in practice. They're not going to be able to do it in competition. And if you're like, well, my kid can do it anyway because they're extremely talented. Well, congratulations. You have a really good athlete. Yeah. But what about all the other kids that need the specific key aspects of the event to get better. And that's one of the key aspects. Then once we get about six and a half weeks to, you know, six weeks into the season, I move that time from comeback pace to goal comeback pace. And so now we're training for what will be predictively even faster than what they've done in an open to prepare them for that. But also that shows up in maximum velocity uh, speed reserve, AKA speed endurance, which makes people uncomfortable because there's this word endurance. So let's call it speed reserve, special endurance one or two. You're going to be doing those things in those workouts as well, where all of a sudden you're doing some super maximal work in those workouts because you're undercutting the distance. Mm -hmm. Like the athlete can run faster than their fastest 200, maybe at a 120 or a 150. So then what happens after we go to goal pace is then we start to slice away reps. And then by slicing away those reps, then we start to open up the distance. And eventually what happens is this quote unquote tempo transforms into a back-to-back -back day where you have something that looks like speed reserve, AKA speed endurance on a Tuesday. So the last week of my season, it's not uncommon for my athletes to have a key performance indicator workout on Monday for their event, whatever it may be. And then on Tuesday to run three 200s or three 150s after that other tough workout mm -hmm. as we move towards the end of the season. Now, why do I do that? 
because our state championship requires our athletes to attack two days in a row. They have to be able to be prepared to do it. And I know that certain particular people say, well, my athletes can come back without doing that. Yes, they do run on the second day and they've already made it into the finals. Congratulations. But they also don't tend to run faster. They also don't tend to run as fast and they also don't finish in the same seed that they were supposed to finish in two thirds of the time. I've done the research. I want my athletes to be better on day two than they were on day one in comparison to their competition. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to go run eight 400s because that's not specific to the event, but that's how that tempo changes on Tuesday, you know, and then when we have a track meet on Friday or Saturday, you can only do tempo if you wanted to once a week. And then you got to make sure you're hitting on max velocity, acceleration, special endurance, speed endurance, you know, these critical mass and intensity workouts that are guided towards the principles of what it takes to be successful at that event. Well, and, and I liked how you said that it has like whatever you, however you're defining tempo or whatever a tempo workout looks like changes throughout the season. What, you know, regardless of whether it's the tempo that they're running at the number of reps that they're doing, the distance that it's, that's covered, the amount of rest in between, what have you. But the other factor, of course, is that if we're prescribing via percentages, then every time that an athlete's PR changes, then so do their tempo splits, right? 100%. If, so yep. if we're prescribing 80%, let's say, uh, and I've just improved my 200 PR, uh, let's say I just really blew it out of the water and I dropped a whole second somehow, because Ryan's a great coach. Well, now that 80% split next week is different than that 80% split was the week before. And I think that when we prescribe, say, like, uh, first of all, high school kids are awful, awful predictors of their own exertion. Um, <laughs> and so when you say, oh, we're going to run, run these at 80%, you can get everything under the sun. You're going to get kids that are damn near jogging. You're going to get kids that are blowing it out of the water and now they're, and now they've ruined the rest of the workout for themselves. Right. Or if you say, all right, you know, we're going to run these two hundreds and you need to run them in, uh, 30, under 30 seconds or something like that. Well, 29, nine might be great for one kid. Right. But that might be too slow for another kid on that same day. So knowing each kid, knowing what each kid is capable of, and knowing how to prescribe accurately and effectively um, tempos, distances, reps, and recoveries that make sense is, is tricky, right? Uh, it's, it's not, if it's done right, it's tricky. Um, and that's where that chart that you showed and where you've broken that down for your athletes is a critical thing for the kids because they need to know exactly what the expected time is for them based off their either season's best or personal best, depending on how you want to construct that. And there was a book that I'm actually working on a new, uh, a new version of that, which includes swimming, throwing, or sorry, swimming, lifting, sprinting, and running, where it breaks all that stuff down in terms of expected intensities, numbers of reps, recoveries, right? Speed. And that's why it's so critical, Tyler, that you have that for your athletes, because number one, 
that's going to be different for every kid. So they need to know like, all right, if your PR is this, then you're running this time. And I do that at the beginning of practice. I will go. If you're in this level, you're running this time. And then if you're at this level, you're running this time. If you're in between, you're in between. Right. And again, you're talking about, okay, so I'm at 28.5 and uh, that kid's at 29.5. So I'm at 29, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they figure out the expected times. And if I see a kid that isn't hitting the mark that they're supposed to hit, we're having a conversation. Now, if everybody's not hitting the mark that they're supposed to hit, then the good thing about that timing and timing everything and having a accurate understanding of what those percentages are supposed to mean an actual chronological output gives you a signal to say, hold up. We're not, we're not able to finish this workout. We've run three reps that are too darn slow and messed up. So we might need to shut this whole thing down because the yep. whole team's doing that yep. versus where one kid does something not right or incorrect, then you can have that individual conversation. So this idea of timing and not timing, you got to time everything. And then you got to know what those times mean and what those expected outputs are for this many reps at this percentage of effort with this recovery. If you don't know those three things, you're not coaching right. Yep. So in summary, I'd say we're both anti-bad tempo. Correct. Cool. Uh, and <laughs> I and I will say that I, you know, you you do more you do more of this than I do, uh, and that's your you know that's why I come to you if I have questions about that kind of stuff, but. Um, I, I see with the athletes that I coach, and I think this is why I'm so drawn to a max speed, max velocity, centric approach. I mean, really prioritizing that, especially in the off season, by the way. And I don't, I think, I think it's important that, I don't know, maybe, maybe you would disagree, but, um, I would do personally very, very little speed endurance type work, uh, in the off season, um, Cause it's hard enough to get kids there in the off season. So I want to keep it short and I want to keep it fast personal. That's personally my approach. Right. But I'm drawn to that because I think so many kids um, have been, haven't been exposed to true sprint training. And so speed gains are the lowest hanging fruit for a lot of kids um, where you can get some pretty quick growth and no growth is linear. Right. So there's that quick growth and then there's maybe a plateau and what you do after that plateau shows what you know as a coach uh, and how your athletes respond to it. But I just think that I see so many kids who don't even know what it means to sprint, right? Uh, And who haven't been exposed to true max speed work that I'm like, oh, we're gonna do that. We like, that's where I'm putting a lot of my, I'm putting a lot of my eggs in that basket simply because um, that's where I see, I see the most bang for my buck with the athletes that I coach currently. And, but it's, it's everything, as we said before, right. There's no absolutes, right. Every, a different environment or a different school or a different team uh, or different kids or whatever is going to, is going to dictate how we approach training in season or out of season. Absolutely. And, and depending on your facility and depending on your situation with snowfall, you have to make the best that you can do. If you don't have a hallway, that's very long. And you have 13, 14 inches of snow on the ground on a regular basis. And you live in Michigan and your name is Tyler. And you have freaking snow, lake effect snow all the time. It, it's going to be problematic. So you have to make choices. Yeah. You know, what is that going to look like? 
How is tempo going to look in that situation? How is max velocity going to look in that situation? And ultimately for me, I'm probably not going to do two days a row blowing my kids up on tile because we don't have car. Yeah. You know, and so you got to make choices on what you're going to do. So a lot of times in the winter, we work on the front end. We're doing a lot of acceleration. We're doing a lot of max velocity because we can do that in the spaces and the confines that we have relatively safely. But then if I want, if we have another bad day again, and we're lucky that we have a big cardio room that has a bunch of bikes, ellipticals, row machines, and I can do some circuits to simulate some of that stuff if I want to do that on the next day. Or if it's cold, but it's not snowy, then that's an excellent time to maybe do some tempo and then come back on in the following day when it's warmer to then follow up with more max velocity and more acceleration, you know, and you just got to figure out like how here's my goal, but this is what weather's doing. How do I use my B, C, D, E workout to line up exactly what I want to accomplish? You know, and I think that you're right. I think that there's a lot that can be done from the real, real fast explosive stuff in the winter. And then ultimately if you have to make that choice, that's what you do because that's your best option with the facility and the conditions out that you have outside. For sure. Um, I want to pause for a word from our sponsor real quick. Uh, I want to take a few minutes to talk to everybody who's here briefly about the clinic that we're doing in February that Ryan's going to be one of our speakers at. uh, And we'll use that as kind of a jumping off point to kind of preview what Ryan's going to talk about at that clinic uh, and then we'll um, we'll talk about some questions that I see have popped up in the chat here. So um, I want to just take a take a second here and share my screen and tell you about what we got coming up here. Um, and hopefully, I share the right window. You guys are gonna have to let me know. I use Google Meet for most stuff. So is, that, Tony? is that Tony? That's Tony. Okay. So uh, the name of the clinic is the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic. It's being sponsored by Simply Faster. Uh, We have eight excellent speakers, including, as I said, Ryan uh, and the rest of them, which I'll run through really quick. So uh, Tony Holler, Feed the Cats, that's the title of his talk that he's going to be given. He's going to be talking on Friday night. Um, We also have, this is not just a track clinic, guys and and ladies. There's a a few few ladies here as well. this is not just a track clinic. It's all things speed for all sports. You know, uh, speed is valuable in, in just about every sport that there is. Uh, and I know at the high school level, a lot of us coach multiple sports. So I wanted to put something together that would be valuable no matter what sport you coach. This is Matt Tallarico. He's a base running coordinator for the New York Yankees, uh, all the way up to the major league level. So he's going to be rethinking running and, and the role that it plays in baseball. Uh, JT Ayers, who's out in California, doesn't have to worry about any of the cold weather crap that we were just talking about. Uh, he posts pictures and they're just in sunshine. And there's, you can see in this picture, there's mountains behind him, just living the dream out there in Orange County. Uh, he's going to be talking about lifting for speed with mass specific force, uh, which is pretty cool stuff. How can we supplement and improve speed in the weight room? Um, Rob Assisi, who's Homewood Flossmore's excellent jumps coach, uh, is going to be talking about how do we navigate all this COVID stuff with our athletes and how do we get explosive athletes ready for their upcoming season? Uh, with the restrictions that we have in place with COVID. Um, Jerry DiFilippo, who's awesome, uh, owner of Challenger Strength in New Jersey. He trains uh, Jersey hitmen, minor league 
hockey, minor league hockey team, a couple different uh, JUCO baseball programs, and of course, private clients as well. Uh, he's also going to be talking some baseball stuff. Uh, Kyle Edwards in Mishawaka, Indiana. Uh, he's going to be talking about some X-Factor stuff, and he's going to be talking about football players uh, as well, so bringing some value there. Um, Keith Ferrara, who is a head strength and conditioning coach at Adelphi University in New York. He oversees 21 different teams there uh, and programs all the strength and conditioning stuff for all 21 teams at that school. Um, and he's going to be talking about the work that he's done with the basketball players. Uh, and of course, our guy, Ryan Banta, who's going to be talking <laughs> about this, this just, God, this title. This title grabs me. It does exactly what it should do. No such thing as mid distance, the critical mass system for the long sprint. So I definitely want to get your, uh, you know, without, I don't want to be in a, you know, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free situation here, Ryan, but if you can give us just a little taste of what that might be uh, in a minute. And then um, just so you guys also know, give because we're sponsored by Simply Fast, we're giving away a ton of prizes. We're gonna be giving away a free lap. Uh, we're gonna be giving away a just jump system. We're going to be giving away three of the VMAX Pro uh, velocity-based training sensors uh, for, you know, it's a bar path tracker, bar, bar speed tracker for velocity-based training in the weight room. Giving away five of these stopwatches that Ryan was asking, who's buying all the stopwatches? If you're not timing in practice, uh, you got to have a stopwatch. Um, and we're also going to be giving away a copy of Ryan's book, Sprinter's Compendium. He's offered to, to make that available as through a raffle. So just a ton of stuff, a ton of prizes, a ton of great speakers. There's going to be a round table on Friday night where uh, a bunch of the coaches just get together and, and have a beer and we'll field questions from whoever's hanging out and just kind of do it informally. Uh, and then of course, all eight sessions will be live and recorded so that anybody who registers can attend live or receive those recordings after the fact. Um, so that is the link right there. Uh, and I'll put it in the chat as well. Um, the early bird price for this is done. The, uh, it's it's $89.99 regularly at this point. Early bird pricing is all over with. But if you do sign up and you mentioned that you heard about it here in this one-on-one -on -one with me and Ryan, you'll get the early bird price of $79.99. And again, that's for eight live sessions plus the recordings. Uh, a round table on top of that, plus entry into all of those awesome raffles um, to win th literally thousands of dollars worth of equipment. So uh, pretty incredible value. Um, and I think for coaches across the board, but so that's my plug there. That's the word from our sponsor. Uh, we'll get out of this if I can figure out how the hell to come back to Zoom uh, and stop sharing my screen. You should be at the top of the bottom and it should say stop share. Stop share. There we go. Got it. Uh, and the link, uh, in case you didn't get it off the screen, the link to check out the website and sign up for the clinic, which is February 19th and 20th is in the chat. So I hope that you'll check that out. But um, with that, uh, let's talk about this enticing title for your talk. No such thing as mid distance. What the hell does that mean? Cause I always thought that 800 is mid distance. So you're going to blow, you're going to blow my mind here, Ryan. Well, I think the biggest thing is, is when you look at the highest performers that predominantly the energy system in which they exist in, in those longer sprints is speed, you know, it's not aerobic, it's anaerobic. And in order to be at the highest competitive level, 
you've got to be extraordinarily fast. So for example, the fastest girl in Missouri history, her name is Samantha Levin. She was coached at Ledoux High School at uh, Coach Buckbar School, who's on the chat with us. She was able to run a 24 flat, like in April, in the 200, okay? And by the end of the year, she went back-to-back days running like 206, you know? In order to do that, you have to be extraordinarily fast. You cannot cover those times in those distances without having some quicks. And what I think a lot of times happens is that obviously, I mean, we're having a conversation about the 200, 400 when it comes to the cats versus critical mass system, whatever it may be. But then the conversation gets even really outlandish when we get to the 800, because most of the time, the people who coach 800 runners are distance runners. And so they come to it with a very strong distance bias. And they don't understand, again, the critical mass component, which is you have to run at a very, very high intensity over a very long distance near or just below or just above the race distance that we're trying to cover. And if you're not doing that, then you're not properly training the athlete because you're not providing them the appropriate poison for them to adjust to it to get better. And I find that so very often in programs. And so what we're going to talk about when we get into this conversation in a seminar format is just the strategies, the progressions, the race models, all these different things that need to happen. And it gets tricky because you also have to have some aerobic work in there. Now, the good news is, is that you get aerobic work from running the more quote unquote special endurance one and special endurance two type of workouts. There's aerobic stuff happening, you know? And so you're getting the benefit of that. And so my thing is if you've got an athlete going on 10 mile long runs in for an 800, you're not doing them justice. If you're not balancing out the, the event with the particular aspects that need to happen like if you don't have over 50 percent of your work based on speed sprinting speed reserve speed endurance whatever you don't have it being at least 50 percent then you are undercutting the absolute performance of your athlete and so that's what we're going to talk about in detail and what that looks like and how those workouts are put together and what the expectations are for those workouts throughout a season and how they need to also transform so you can take the kid in a direction where they can have a maximal performance when you want them to have it the best. Awesome. And I love what you said, you know, like, and I, I want to tread lightly because I don't want to act like I know a lot about distance training, but I've often thought that I, that it's a mistake and I, I see it. Uh, I see it often. I think that it's a mistake when we get to track season and a lot of times the distance coach is the cross country coach. A lot of times the head track coach is the cross country coach. Um, and when those 800 type kids are being trained and really even your milers, right? It's the, the track season is treated as an extension of cross country training, right? When those are two different animals. Uh, and so I think that it's cool that you're going to bring in a little bit different perspective and say, all right, here's, here's an event that 
often gets talked about as a distance or mid distance event. Um, but speed is still King, right? It's not, Correct. as you said, it's not, well, just got to get in better shape, go run some more 10 mile runs and you'll get better at the 800. Like that's freaking fast. The kids that are elite in the 800 are freaking fast. So, uh, if you want to compete, you better be too. Absolutely. And I, I will leave, and I will leave you with this and then we can, uh, move on to a different subject cause we don't want to give too much stuff away, but if you're treating your track and field season, like another cross country season, you are absolutely doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. The way that you treat cross country is going to be completely different in its construction and training model than you do with track and field. You don't have enough time to be slow in track season. And you coach cross country as well, right? I do. And I coached football before that, but I had an opportunity, you know, uh, conditioning guy for our football team. And we went to the state championship. And after that, I was good and it was awesome, but I had an opportunity to become the head girls cross country coach. And uh, we went on to have two girls make it to Foot Locker Nationals. So, you know, when you have talent, you're going to see some really special things. When you don't have talent, like this year, my team was very modestly talented, but our girls dropped four and a half minutes off their 5K on average. That's awesome. You know, it's good, right? So yeah. you've got to be attacking certain things. And we do that in cross country too. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing as much speed that we can do for cross country without it interrupting the other things that got to get done as often as we possibly can. And then in track and field, then we target the different distance and the different key performance indicators for that event in the 800. But it's got to be totally different. you got to come at it from a completely different angle in the track season. For sure. Um. Awesome, man. I'm looking forward to it. I, I know that there's a couple people here today who are already signed up for it and I'm uh, really excited. Uh, and I hope that, you know, hope everybody that's here today will, will think about joining us. Cause I really think that it's going to be something, something unique and something uh, exciting. Oh, somebody's trying to get in somebody new. Welcome Demetrius Clark. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, I'm really excited to have you and I'm glad that you agreed to be on and you've been a tremendous help with getting everything rolling with that too. So, so thanks a bunch. Um, my pleasure. I want to move to some questions and we'll start kind of moving towards some kind of closure here. Uh, and, and we'll just see what happens, but I think there weren't a ton of questions, so maybe we can, um, maybe we can just unmute those people and they can ask their questions, uh, directly. Perhaps Tyler Rathke, are you still here? I'm going to unmute you. What's up, bud? Hey, uh, I'll unmute you. Uh, there we go. And then you had a, you had a question earlier kind of alluding or talking about when Ryan was talking about some of like how he sets up his, his week. Uh, yeah. So Ryan, we've talked about critical mass concepts how they apply to throwing in the weight room and over under and so i guess my question was when you talked about like specific at each race distance and what those days looked like um with those 80s and 120s are you uh taking a good amount of recovery on those and then also um do you look to increase the volume of those repetitions over the course of the season or actually start a little bit higher with the volume and decrease it over the course of the season or is it a blend so when we look at the amount of load in terms of meters of work i like to start with the minimal suggested dosage from usatf for everything 
it's a nice guideline um, for where we want to start. So if I'm talking about the Monday workout that you talked about, and I mentioned, I saw it in the questions, the answer is yes. So we're talking 120s and 80s. And then we're also talking about monstrous breaks in between that. So there's going to be a lot of time. Now, one of the cool things that uh, Coach Buckvar and I had developed over time is that in between that recovery phase, though, you also can do a couple light buildups of 20 to 30 yards or some wickets. And that accomplishes two things. One, if you're dealing with the wickets, you're protecting that technical model in the middle during the recovery, which is nice, so that when they step to the line again for the next rep, it helps stabilize that technical model for them. And, you know, when we're talking recoveries, a 120, that means at a minimum, I'm giving them 12 minutes rest. Now, I don't go any larger than 15 minutes recovery between my reps, which means there is a lot of time where we're kind of sitting or standing around. And I know that some coaches want to get workouts done in 45 minutes. Well, I can't do that if I'm going to value the recovery and also the intensity. So we have that little time. So if we're going 12 minutes at six minutes, we're doing three forties or thirties to reset them so that the next rep maintains a level of quality. And they've done research sports performance that shows that by doing that, it stabilizes the next rep better where you get near the same performance. So it doesn't degrade as much. Then to your question about the volume, the answer is yes. Every three weeks, we're adding a little bit. So what might happen is if I have a 120 and an 80 and another 80 for my practice, then maybe the next week I've got two 120s and an 80. You know, and then the third week I do three 120s, right? And then the fourth week I'm dropping down. So then I got a 120 and, and then 120 and an 80 again. And then we move up from there. Now that's as long as the athlete can tolerate the load and it doesn't look like they're breaking down mechanically. And the times, as Tyler said, are appropriate to the distance, the expectation chronologically based on the percentage and the recoveries are right. But that's, that's what it looks like in those workouts. Then... The other thing we play with, because usually your 100-meter sprinter is going to be a 200-meter sprinter, is we will do that on the, the straightaway, and we will do that on the curve. And we will do some of them flying, and we will do some of them standing. And you mix those stimuluses up. And when I say standing, I'm talking combine start, three-point start, ready, go, right? And, you know, we do that with a clap. And so you're also mixing the stimulus so that you're keeping it, even though the construction on paper looks similar by changing if it's on a curve or a straightaway, and then if it's a fly or a stand, you're also playing with some of these um, variations that keep the athlete focused, engaged, and seeing different stuff. That's awesome. I, I, love, I love the way you approach it, Ryan, in the sense of, People see your distances and they panic sometimes, but the intensity is so high and people miss that, that the rest is still appropriate. And I think it mimics the track meet experience a lot. And so I appreciate yeah. that. So thanks, man. And that's the thing I think people just struggle with is that they, they think, oh no, I remember that terrible coach I had that made us run like 10 300s with no recovery. And it's like, that's wildly inappropriate. And we don't do that. Luckily, I never had that coach, but I've coached with that coach. 
Uh, thanks, Tyler. Thanks, guys. Yeah, man. Uh, we had another question from Shane Cronin. Hopefully, I said that right. Did I say it right? Cool. I'm going to unmute you, and you can go ahead and ask your question, Shane. Yeah, I had a question for both of you guys. When you're talking about tempo and you're doing it over a season, when you get to that state championship and athletes are running seven to eight races over a weekend, do you see – less injuries happen because of the tempo or actually do you see injuries increase because of the tempo throughout a season? Go ahead, Ryan. You can feel sure. that one first. So one of the things we found um, with our program is you're making adjustments all the time. Right. And so I had this new assistant coach and she was, she's great. She's one of the best coaches I've ever been around. She's, she's a rock star. She's eventually going to be a hall of fame coach. But we were running our distance kids, which also included some of our long sprinters. And they were running like every day, even on Sundays. And what we found is, oh, no, we're getting some stress reactions, severe shin splints, things like that. So we looked at what can we cut out? Well, obviously Sundays, right? Sundays are cut out. You know, we're not doing that anymore. They need a proper day of rest. I'm uncomfortable with them running on Sundays anyway. But the second thing was that we did to fix that problem is we put every day that we can be on the turf for drills, as opposed to the track, we go on the turf. And all of a sudden, that next season, same athletes, a lot of the same prescriptions in practice, just with Sundays completely off and going onto the turf, all those things disappeared. And so for me, I don't have injuries when we get into the final portion of our season, I've been very blessed, very lucky, but I also feel it's a part of, you know, what we're doing. I had one kid towards the end of the season, get a injury that was bone related, not soft tissue. We don't get soft. I mean, I've had only three hamstring pulls in 13 years, you know, um, and each one of those girls that had a hamstring pull had uh, a real strong cue angle. They were a little heavier. And you know what I mean by Q angle is their legs were in at the hip and they had teeny tiny feet and they were really thickly muscled. And so we had a young lady who was supposed to be a senior on our team last year. She's now in college running track and she was a state qualifier in the hundred meter dash. She was built like those girls and, you know, you got to learn. So we did some things a little bit differently to provide and make sure that she doesn't get hurt. Um, to keep her healthy. And we, we were able to accomplish that and she never had a hamstring injury. But when it came to the bone issue, we had one girl and all three of her siblings had shin splint issues no matter what they were doing. The brother was like a high jumper and a thrower. The other sister was a thrower and a short sprinter. The other one was a hurdler. And they all had shin issues and things like that. And so what we found with her is we just give her a high-low. You know, she's still going to have tempo workouts because she's a 400 meter specialist, you know, but we're also not going to work her every day. So she'll come out, work hard on Monday. We don't work out really on Tuesday. She'll warm up and then we'll do some stuff in the cardio room or in the weight room. She'll run a workout on Wednesday, Thursday, she's light or low and Friday pre-meet Saturday competition. And so she's the one kid, but you got to be conscientious that that's always a problem. So for me, I know that a lot of coaches don't like to run track practices without spikes on, but you got to run without spikes on if you're expecting to move the volume up for a tempo workout, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, or you put them on a grass surface, you know, and you have a, you paint 
uh, uh, track, a 400 meter track on the outside of one of your practice fields that isn't being used. So those are things that we've had to adjust. And that was the one kid that I had the one time that has ever struggled with that. And we've been doing a variation of this critical mass system since 2007. Nice. I've been fortunate that I haven't had a ton of injuries. Knock on wood, this will be the year I get one. Um, I haven't had a ton of like really serious injuries to, to navigate around, but I will say like with some of those nagging things, you know, like, like the shin splints and God, you know, um, I feel like a lot of that is dictated by what the athlete has done in the winter or in the off season leading up, because when a lot of those, a lot of injuries that isn't necessarily a pull, uh, or, you know, like a contact injury from like a fall on a hurdle or something like that. A lot of those are just from, from too much, too fast and mismanaging volume, um, and mismanaging intensity and mismanaging surface, right? You mentioned getting on the turf. So like, for example, basketball players that come out and they finish their basketball season, they come over track a couple of days later. I don't see a lot of injuries from those kids, right? They've been doing a lot of impact, you know, a lot of jumping, a lot of changing directions. Their, their joints and their bodies are primed for the type of impact that they're going to see. Swimmers, holy cow. Those kids get really opposite. Those yeah, kids get shin opposite. splints because their their system here is like insane, and they feel like they can go forever. But it's a no impact sport, you know. Mm. So they get on the track, and all of a sudden they're pounding, and they're injured in a week if you're not careful. Um, and then in the off season at my school, really every school I've ever worked at, I think, eh, no, except for one, um, the only surface we have to run on in the off season is those tile floors in public school, public high schools, which I am convinced are the hardest surface known to man. Um, and they're just awful to run on. So, but I will say, because your question was about tempo and I, uh, the, the short answer is I don't, thankfully I haven't had a lot of injuries to deal with and I don't know that more or less tempo necessarily negates uh, or reduces injuries. I can't say, I can't speak to that. But one thing that I will say is that when you do, when I do see kids tweak, you know, um, in a, in a hundred or in a 60 or something like that, a question that I'm always curious about is how much high intensity work have they done in practice, whether that's a 20 or a 30 acceleration or whether it's a 40 or a 60 or 80 or hundred or whatever, because I think that if you don't do enough intensity in practice and all of a sudden you ask your body to go to a gear that it hasn't gone to before, um, it doesn't matter how much tempo or endurance or, you know, special one, special two speed, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't matter how much of that you've done. If you're trying to find a gear that you've never found before, um, I think that's when a lot of tweaks and pulls and things like that are, are prone to happen. So, uh, not, I guess luck, lucky for me that I can't give a satisfactory answer. Cause I thankfully haven't had too many bad injuries to deal with mostly like the shin splint type stuff that a lot of us, a lot of us deal with, but, um, it's a balancing act, right. Of, the the specific type stuff and the specific tempo that's pre prescribed in the right way and making sure that you're not sacrificing intensity and max velocity and all those kinds of things uh, along the way as well. Um, by the way, in Michigan, we have a one day state meet, um, which is the worst thing. And I hate it. Are there any other Michigan coaches here? Probably not. God, it's the worst meet in the world. 
uh, hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, and then if you have a great kid, you know, who's in a great sprinter, especially, you know, who maybe qualifies in the one and the two and maybe a sprint relay and maybe the long jump or something like that. Uh, and they got to run prelims and semis and finals of the one and the two on the same day. Uh, so there's six races already. Uh, and then they're, and then they're in the four by one and then they're long jumping and then, and then they're, so they're doing six jumps in a day probably because, uh, you know, they have to, they get their three jumps or whatever. And to qualify for the final round of, it's like ridiculous. It's way more than a kid should do on a specific day. Um, but, and, and yet, uh, thankfully haven't had any major injuries or blowouts at the state meet and have been fortunate that I haven't had, uh, I don't think I've ever had a kid who like was in position to go to state or compete at the state level who, you know, had had something horrible happen luckily um philip i'm at kalamazoo central high school in kalamazoo michigan um cool i think is that hopefully that kind of answers your question shane yeah it does and banta you need to get up to michigan and like do some political rallies to make that a two-day meet instead of six races a day. it's insane man and i'm not storming any track meets or any capitals anytime well yeah well we got plenty of people that'll storm a capital up here apparently uh anyway not to get you're the <laughs> geez louise i better have another beer um uh it's I never knew any different because I, I ran here and the first seven years of my coaching career were here. And then I went to Illinois and all of a sudden there's this two day state meet. It's at Eastern Illinois university. And it's like a spectacle. Like it's, that's an awesome, awesome state meet. Um, I've actually gone down to it since I moved back to Michigan uh, on the rare occasion that it doesn't fall on the same time that we have our regional meet up here. I'll, I'll drive down and go to the state meet in Illinois because it's such a fun meet to be at. But um, I once I got that taste of what the two day spectacle looks like, I'm like, God, Michigan, get it together. <laughs> what are you doing? For sure. Uh, all right. Uh, Nick Buckvar was had a question as well. So I'm going to go ahead and unmute you, Nick, if you're still there. Yep. Uh, my question, Ryan, back to your discussion about uh, target times and practice and uh, giving kids times for intervals based on percentages of their of their performances. How does that fit into your overall cycle? Like I'm assuming you have, you know, you you know, when a kid is sort of ready to, you know, to PR or to peak throughout a season. Um, and if they're not hitting those times, for instance, in practice. You know, maybe that's a result of the training and not necessarily, you know, the kid just hasn't been fresh for a race kind of thing. So a couple things. First of all, let's say they do set a PR. One of the things I try to do is I try to make sure that unless it's at the very end of the year and we're in qualifying situations, I try to not let them run the, that race again the following week. Because then what's going to happen is they're going to press because they're overly excited. They've just run a super maximal performance. And so they're probably more fatigued and more tired than they traditionally would be. And then there's the psychological, oh gosh, how can I say it? baggage that they want to hammer and get another PR. And then because they're pressing too much, they're probably going to be slower. Mm -hmm. So typically if, if I have the opportunity to do it in my season, 
I will wait till two weekends later, you know, to run that race again. And then within my practice and in my training, I will not adjust the times. We will still run that following week's percentages in intervals and practice at the previous PR. Now, why do I do that? Because I want to stabilize the new them. I want to make sure that that wasn't a fluke, that it wasn't a freak situation where we had a big gust of wind or there was a malfunction in the timing system, which we've had before. I mean, we've had where a girl who was running like 12-7 went out and ran 11-9 FAT. And we had like a dude running 14 flat in the 110 hurdles. I'm like, that is not accurate. And so the timing system was inaccurate for the overall time, but was giving this for whatever reason was cutting off that amount of time for every one of the races. And thank goodness we caught it. That's obviously not the more common situation. The more common situation is they do have a super maximal performance, a PR, but I want to wait a week, stabilize the new them following week, start implementing those new progressions in time. Now how it fits with my overall scheme is that when we start to move for a particular thing that you're talking about, Buck, when it comes to tempo, is that that tempo is dialing up. So I basically go, okay, in the last two weeks of the season, you know, if I'm expecting them to be at 90, 95% effort, then I've got to make sure that I divide up my jumps in percentage that I'm moving them up week to week to week to week, you know. But if you're unloading and you don't feel comfortable with that because it's just too small a numbers, then what you can do is just wait. You know, you're removing a rep uh, the last six weeks of the season, you know, moving towards the end of the season. But then, okay, this week I'm jumping up two and a half percent. Then I'm going to stay there for the following week. Then the week after that, I'm going to jump up two and a half percent, stay there for the following week. And then I get to the end of the season. And now I'm back at a 95 percent effort, 92, 93, wherever that takes you. The other thing is, is as your athletes get faster, those PRs are improving, uh, or those percentages are improving in what they look like chronologically on the clock. And so that fits in there too. Now, that all being said, you also have to create days where you're going to have to give them their legs back. And so even though you have these high expectations of intensity, in order for them to hit that and not be exhausting in your plan, you've also got to make sure that all the other workouts in the week are showing some sort of change most of the time in total volume or number of reps as well so that the athlete can hit those performances and not be completely trashed or exhausted. The other thing that I will do is if I get to the end of the season and I now know what my athlete is going to be running at the state series and has a chance to finish off at state, if this kid's a 100 and 200 meter specialist, well, we're not going to be running uh, any 350s or 450s anymore because they're not going to help us in that, you know, and then I can rely on, even if they're on the four by four, I use the actual race day as that special endurance one or special endurance two. And I don't show it up anymore in practice because when they're in that peak cycle, they don't need it anymore. So that's another way that I evolved the training in terms of my choices of what I'm doing when I'm doing it and how intense I'm. Does that make sense, Buck? If you can unmute him. Oh, my bad. I was like, well, I guess it makes sense or it doesn't make sense or he disappeared. 
Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one another key point that you mentioned is that, you know, the meet is also a training session. And so I think a lot I think a lot of times we forget about that and it's like, oh, we did all this Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday and then it's just go out and race and that that race day is actually a training session therefore that's sort of another time of you know technically are they running at 100 you know we would assume they're running at 100 percent effort maybe but not necessarily 100 percent of their their true capable uh time unless like you said you've given them some fresh legs you know and allowed them to recover but yeah that like the answer was great was great yeah and then the other thing i would say to that too buck is if they if they get blown up like on a Saturday, because they've just done a multitude of super, uh, super maximal efforts. It's the first day that the weather's great and it's really warm. And that's why a warm up. That's why I am very uncomfortable with running a practice that's, you know, 45 minutes long or whatever. And because I want to use the warm up as a diagnostic tool to figure it out. So on Monday, if I see that they're just trashed and they look terrible and they're sore, then I'm not going to do my traditional key performance indicator workout on Monday. What I'm going to then do is switch to a priming workout where we might do some short explosive med ball stuff, some mobility things, and then I'll shift what I was going to do on Monday to Tuesday. Don't do any tempo on Wednesday at all. Follow up with some sort of maximal acceleration, you know, or one or two reps of a, a speed reserve workout on Thursday if that's the type of athlete they are, premium on Friday, race on Saturday. So when you get to the end of the season, you know, you've got to be aware of what's happening in front of you. That's why the warm-up is so important. The priming of them is so important. And then if you see that as an issue, then you've got to create more space between the last super maximal day, which is Saturday, give them Sunday and Monday off, come in on Tuesday. <clears throat> Wednesday still active recovery. Thursday you choose whatever you feel the athlete needs to have. Traditionally, something neurological. Friday's pre-meet. Saturday you race. And that all becomes complicated as too, if, uh, as well. If your meet schedule is different, right? Correct. We, we don't run a lot of Saturday meets. We run Tuesday, Friday most weeks. So that's a now you got a whole different set of circumstances to navigate. Yeah, that thing is. Go ahead. I was going to say that's, that's awful. You know, and I, one of the things that we're so lucky in St. Louis is that we do have a lot of Saturday meets because if you go to Kansas city, they don't have a lot of Saturday meets. And we in just St. Louis just assume that that's track and field season where so many other communities, like you said, so many other places, they just don't run on Saturdays. Yeah. So awesome stuff, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the questions from everybody. Uh, appreciate you guys for, for, hanging out and sticking around to the end. Uh, I would encourage you, as I said, to, to check out the clinic we're doing in February. It's going to be awesome. Ryan's going to bring the fire. No such thing as middle distance. Uh, plus a bunch of other great stuff from uh, all things speed in all sports. So check out the speed performance, uh, virtual speed performance clinic with the link that I sent out. I'll shoot everybody an email with that as well. But um, thanks again for being here. Thanks for your questions. And thank you, Ryan. Absolutely, Tyler. It's a pleasure. And we'll see you guys later on this month. Uh, and I look forward to getting into it, into the weeds in depth with all the different types of training and stuff. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to share some ideas and 
kind of prime the pump of our conversations that we're going to have in your clinic. For sure, man. All right, everybody, you guys have a great night. Go see, go spend time with your families or do whatever you need to have a drink, do whatever you need to do. All right. Bye guys. Thank you. Have a good one. Demetrius, you good, man? Or you need me to just get boot you out? <laughs> oh, you're muted. <laughs> I got you. Hang on a second. All right. Yeah, I'm. I I just came at the last minute. I missed some of the the topics and everything. I'm gonna. Well, Brian, I'm gonna see you at the ICA clinic anyway. We're gonna. Yeah. And we recorded this too, so we'll make it available. Okay. Make sure yeah. you get it. Okay, I just it just got done with um with preseason training on our on our girls was tonight and everything. So, well, glad you're able to make it for part of it. We'll send you the the link to that uh, recording. All right. All right. All right. Take care, man. Later, Demetrius. See you soon, buddy. All right. Take care, everyone. Take care, y'all. See. I think Blackfire is just with his kids at this point. All right. I'll just get him out of here. We don't have to, I mean, I like to debrief for a yeah. quick minute anyway. Let's see. And then remove, get them out of here. Doesn't matter. We can just talk and then I'll just end the call. So, hey man, that was awesome. Great stuff. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely, dude. I, you know, appreciate the opportunity and hopefully, you know, we share this out and it seems like the recording went well. I think I only glitched once and it was when you were chatting so that's cool. good um so hopefully you didn't even you didn't even have that on your end at all um, oh it went smooth i yeah like very tiny very tiny glitch uh very briefly but yeah i think the recording quality will be will be pretty good so um awesome. yeah and then like you said if you want to put that as out as bonus material or whatever on your podcast that's that's cool too and then i'll send an email to everybody if you want to let me know like where people can find your podcast, uh, then I can just include that in the email also because I'm going to make sure that everybody, I send everybody the link to the clinic again and I'll let them know about your podcast and just make sure that everybody has uh, has access to everything we talked about tonight. And Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, it's, uh, I had an hour and like 36 minute conversation with Burris. So it's a, it's a long one. Um, but it's the first time that Burris is really shared in a public setting. So I think it's going to be great for people to hear. And I didn't want to steal too much of his thunder, yeah. but it was just so fresh on my mind because we had that conversation last night. That there were things like, yeah, we I kind of talk about this, you know, like that's, oh yeah, that's the thing we talked about. I think it's important to kind of share with everybody, you know, good reminders about things. It's like, oh yeah, I used to do that. And then I went away from it. And then mm -hmm. this is the reason why I did do it you know, um, but it was great. And then, you know, Derek um, Hansen was giving me trouble, which was really funny. You know, like, I didn't even know how to take it. I'm like, is this guy, he kept trying to joke with me on stuff. And I'm like, are we, are we go, you know? So like, but he was, he's, uh, Derek's the number, the number two guy. So he'll be episode two. Burris is episode three. And then uh, I've got Latif. You got Dan Faf on too, man. You got some heavy hitters. 
Yeah, man. Well, you know, I, I hope that over time I've built up enough goodwill that you get the you reap a little bit of the benefits. And the, if you'd get, if you got, you listen to Dan's, right? Did you listen to one with I Dan? I haven't listened to it yet. Okay. You'll like it. Dan, 